From InsureTech Ireland, this is InsureTech Radio, episode 26. Hello, I'm Connor Sweetman and welcome to InsureTech Radio, the weekly podcast that teaches you about how technology is changing insurance and about the people making it happen. Basically what happened was it was a capital problem and how that manifested itself was reinsurance companies were making a crap ton of money. So tell me, when you say capital problem, does that mean there's you too just, much, too little? Or? You didn't have enough capital in the business. The, the, you know, the demands for the demands for reinsurance was going up and up and up. More and more people were needing it and there wasn't enough reinsurance companies around so there was there was a somewhat restriction on supply because it was a capital problem there just wasn't enough capital there so as a result the rates were relatively high like in the early 210s like we're not talking 20 years ago i'm only talking less than 10 years ago their return on equity was like 15 20 25 it was huge because they were making so much money off their property cap book this week my guest is mick cooney cto of describe data he gives me a crash course on insurance linked securities what exactly they are, how they work, and why they are growing in appeal as an alternative to traditional reinsurance. I hope you enjoy. So Mick, welcome back to InsureTech Radio. How are you? I'm good. I'm fine. It's good to be back. Thanks for having me. Cool. So tonight we're going to do another explainer. Um, the last time we looked at a, a cliche, which was data is the new oil. And tonight we're going to look at something I know uh Nothing about it. Actually, the extent of my knowledge is what it stands for. So ILS stands for Insurance Linked Securities. That's correct. That's where my knowledge ends. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, first of all, can, can you maybe explain it to me as if you're explaining it to your granny? Oh, that's a great standard. Um, okay, so Insurance Linked Securities is relatively new. And it's basically a way for the capital markets, that's hence the term securities, um, for the capital markets to get involved in insurance at a high level, primarily because it's considered to be an uncorrelated asset class. And by that, I mean, when you look at companies or corporate debt or stocks or bonds or currencies or whatever, one of the key things you're looking for is diversification. So in other words, you want you want to spread your risk in the same idea that insurance would Um and insurance is considered to be uncorrelated because the things that tend to affect the performance of insurance is considered to be a lot less correlated to the things that affect like macroeconomic trends and all that, that would tend to affect a lot of financial securities. So if we think even of our pension fund, for example, right. which would be split into um, uh, stocks, bonds, cash, gold, whatever, yeah. um, and that they all can interact with each other, whereas insurance it's kind of related more to like say big weather events and right. things like that, which is nothing to do with the stock market or the bond market. That I mean, that's not strictly true because okay. the big macro events that can affect insurance, like, you know, if if a massive thunderstorm, like storms go through Europe or whatever, that will have an effect on corporate performance. So a good example right now, as of February 2019, 20, 2020, sorry, mm-hmm. God, not quite used to the new year. Um, we have that pandemic fear in Wuhan in in China. Now, they're talking already that it might affect the stock market in terms of like Apple's supply chain, for example. So a whole bunch of things, because of China's been effectively shut down and there's travel bans going in and all this kind of stuff, there are going to be knock-on effects. So in that case, if you had insurance-related things that are affected by you know a pandemic outbreak, 
there is a correlation. It's just not necessarily always as direct as you would want, or as you would expect it to be, and certainly probably less correlated than it would be. The correlation between, say, you know, extremely bad weather in the United States, let's say, is even if there is a knock-on effect, it's still going to be less correlated than, say, the effect of interest rates have on both stocks and bonds. Okay. So cool. there's still lower correlation, even if it's not exactly the same. Okay, cool. And how did... So what is the idea behind them? Like, so we know that's kind of un, it's un, uncorrelated, or generally uncorrelated, uh, an uncorrelated asset class. But what is the why is it attractive to why is insurance an attractive vehicle for exploring that? Right. Okay. So I guess I should talk a couple of there's a couple of kind of interacting parts to discuss here. I, I should say before I start anything, that I first got interested in in ILS and more specifically cat bonds by the author Michael Lewis, who I think has been mentioned before on the podcast. Um, and he wrote a really interesting article as part of the New York Times, I think, called In Nature's Casino, which was written in 2010, I think, or 2008 or nine. Um, it was about 10 years ago, maybe a bit longer. And it was all about the rise of cat bonds and, you know, the the uh, offshoots of Katrina and all those kind of things. And he, he basically discussed how cat bonds came about, where they came, where they were discussed and and all that. So that's a highly recommended read. I mean, do do show notes. Yeah. So I can add you the link in the show notes. It's, it's, it's worth everyone's time reading because Michael Lewis is a brilliant writer. So even if you're not really interested in any topic at all, he's such a good storyteller that it's almost always worth reading his stuff. Yeah. Especially if it's something you're not interested in because I guarantee you, you'll be surprised at how interesting you find the story. Yeah. He said he's just a gifted storyteller. Yeah. yeah, he's incredible. Uh, apparently his latest one, just on a complete side note, is about the rise of... Um, youth sports in the US because his kids are growing up now and he's getting involved with like kids softball and he's talking about how all of a sudden there's this massive industry that's completely appeared out of nowhere in the last 15 years presumably due to the whole psychotic parents you know <laughs> basically living vicariously through their kids Probably kind of children. thing I don't know exactly I heard about it was on Desert Island Disc recently so <laughs> anyway that's neither here nor there anyway so in his article so basically what happened was kind of to discuss it it started through the use of, a, of an instrument called a cat bond as in a catastrophe bond and to talk about that really we kind of have to talk about reinsurance so a lot of people kind of heard of reinsurance if you're involved in the insurance industry but it's certainly the one thing I've learned about insurance is it's a lot bigger than people think it is. Mm. So people hear about insurance, they think, I know about insurance because I have car insurance mm. or I have house insurance. And basically, that is a very small part of the picture and there's way more going on. So typically, um, it's not quite as simple as this because, you know, like everything else, life is a bit more complicated. But effectively, reinsurance is insurance for insurance companies. Mm. So reinsurance is basically where you have an insurance company and... Let's say they sell, I think we talked about this the last time. Let's say they have sell a whole load of property business and they're a little bit worried because they have a lot of exposure to, say, the southwest United States that tends well, to get well, a lot by. Let's just make this real, really real for yeah. people. So sure. everyone has home insurance. Yeah. So, so it's not just any property. It's home. Yeah. They have a book of home. I imagine you're going to say in a cat exposed area. Yeah. yeah. Or, or, But even in Ireland, theoretically, like, because if the, the problem with catastrophe insurance is it's particularly bad when catastrophes hit areas that don't normally get hit by them. Mm. So it's why, for example, when we had the blizzard two or three years ago, Ireland basically shut down for a couple of days. So imagine that happens where suddenly you have 150 kilometre per hour gales happen. Like if a hurricane came through Ireland, which does happen from time to time, mm. the damage that gets done is is 
to, to, is catastrophic because the homes aren't built to be designed for that or like an earthquake in Dublin or all those, you know. So those things are become because of climate change and because of all the stuff we're seeing um, and regardless of the politics of it. I mean, there's a lot of things that are changing. So insurance companies obviously have to worry about what's the worst that can possibly happen. So they typically think about this. And apparently, I've, I did some reading about this as a result of this podcast. So the reinsurance industry kind of came about in Germany in the 1850s because Hamburg had a huge fire, a bit like the Great Fire of London. And after the Great Fire of London in 1666, um, I guess it's, uh, to, to speak somewhat stereotypically, they, a certain amount of prudence was involved and they looked and went, well, that was pretty bad. We should probably do something about it. Mm-hmm. So they created mutual fire insurance across a number of cities in Germany. And Hamburg had a particularly bad one. So they're trying to learn from the Brits, basically. Exactly. Okay. And 200 years later, like it was 1850, I think, they had a particularly bad, somewhere around then, they had a devastating fire in Hamburg that burnt down like a quarter of the city. And while they had fire insurance, they didn't have enough fire insurance. And apparently there was a lot of red faces where a whole bunch of insurance companies couldn't make the claims. So what they started the idea of was, well, well OK, we're, we have a lot of aggregated exposure in this one city. Mm-hmm. So they started creating these pools that would allow you to insure across different con- different cities. So the idea was spreading the risk, the whole idea of geographic mm-hmm. expo- uh, like diversification. So this is from an insurance company point of view. They're saying, um, OK, so rather than insuring all these homes in Hamburg and if there's one fire or one event, they're all going to be burnt down. We're going to need to uh, diversify that by having right. uh, homes in this, insuring a group of homes in this city, this city, this city. Right. So if one of them burns down, we still right. will make money that year. Exactly. But yeah. because these were larger, I mean, this is you're talking 200 years ago, yeah. everything was quite local. Yeah. So from my understanding, because there was a bunch of different insurance companies that had a somewhat geographic focus, the concept of reinsurance happened whereby they, I think they tried to sell it somewhere else and couldn't do do a deal. So they basically created another company that started out. And I think that's how Cologne Re started. So mm-hmm. Cologne Re have now turned into Genry, which is owned by Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah. So they started it out and they basically created another company that was essentially diversifying the loans. So that's why, and I think, I believe that's why reinsurance is so strong in Germany and why you have Munich Re and Swiss Re and all them. And a lot of the, the German reinsurance is kind of like a trope mm-hmm. because a lot of these reinsurance companies came out of fire insurance in essentially the 1800s. So what reinsurance is, is it tends to deal with aggregations of risk and there's a couple of different ways they can do it. One of the com- There's two main ways. There's one is a quota share and, and the other is an excess of loss. So quota share is really simple. It's like I have a whole lot of property insurance and I'm going to sell 40% of that risk to you. So you're going to take 40% of the claims and you're going to take 40% of the premium. And we're going to add a few more terms around it and all that kind of stuff. But essentially that's what it works. So it's idea. I'm, I'm kind of sharing all the risk I take, you're taking 40% off. Yeah. And there's, you know, that it works that way. And then the other one is an excess of loss idea. So it's like, well, you know, I've got say $500 million worth of exposure. I'm going to talk in dollars here, but I've got $500 million of exposure but realistically, I only want to take $200 million. So anything over $200 million in the aggregate, you're going to take. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of capping my loss at $200 million, and I'm going to pay you a premium. And it's essentially an insurance policy where across the entire book of business, as long as the aggregate losses don't exceed $200 million, you don't have to pay me anything, but you have to pay anything over $200 million. Yeah, you can also do that on a per loss basis as well, where you'll only 
the primary insurer will take, say, the first million or five million, yeah. and the reinsurer will take the other 20 or yeah. 200 or whatever. On an individual basis. Yeah, exactly. So you get, I mean, you, you get all the, and that's why reinsurance gets quite complex. Yeah. Also, in the real world now, what's started to happen is it's become a tax, let's use the euphemism, it's become a tax efficiency play, <laughs> where you essentially do all this kind of stuff to the point where the central bank in Britain, the Bank of England, had to step in and went, no, there has to be a certain amount of insurable interest, otherwise it's not considered reinsurance. It was a way of basically getting around tax, paying taxes, essentially. That's confusing. What, what do you mean by that? So they, they, they structured reinsurance deals where you take some of mine and then you pay me back and I put it out here and I do it here and you do that. And it becomes incredibly complex in Byzantine. But the net effect is shock horror. I pay a lot less tax than I would have. And Sorry, is this insurance? It's not insurance premium tax. It's what? Or, no, or corporate, corporate, corporate profits and stuff like that. It was a way of basically becoming tax efficient, quote unquote. And that's still done by a lot of insurance companies as well as a way of, I, I don't quite understand how it does, and I think it's designed that way. <laughs> um, I'm sure if we could figure it out. Like, <laughs> I, I do know there is a bunch of people that manage what what's known as inward risk and outward risk, yeah. and a lot of it is quite complicated. And I remember asking someone, why is this so complicated? And they were like, oh, because it's all about basically taking advantage of tax laws. And tax yeah, laws. and I imagine maybe, cause maybe through the payment of reinsurance claims, like that could, it's not really turnover, but you know you could figure out that could be a way to affect profitability. Yeah, because as far as I'm aware, insurance payments is not considered income for the purposes of taxes. Mm. So there's probably a way around. Anyway, and some people were completely abusing the system. Where at, and that's why there's like now a minimum of you have to have like a ten percent. You can't insure out if you're less than ten percent of it. It's not considered an insurance contract anymore. Okay. It's basically something else that does fall under the tax laws. Right. Yeah. Anyway, so that's neither here nor there. So basically, so that's what reinsurance is. So, and, and the big part of the business with reinsurance was property cap, property cap, and and so catastrophe exposed property. So your big ones will be like the continental United States, where you have all the hurricanes, all the floods. You would have a lot of hurricane and earthquake risk in, say, the Pacific Rim. There's a there's a there's a couple of like particular hot zones where most of the catastrophe reinsurance is based and there is considered like very cat exposed regions mm-hmm. um wildfires obviously in australia would be a big one and there's a couple in europe although i think it's european pandemic and also snowstorms in europe i can't remember there's about five or six categories there's a i don't know much better there's something called a storm flood in germany yes uh and then it'd be earthquake in italy uh yeah. i imagine yeah. yeah, and then flood. Flood would be the big one in Europe. Yeah, and actually, I suppose, theoretically, because technically Mount Vesuvius is still active, mm-hmm. um, even though it's been dormant for quite a while, those kind of things will be considered c- catastrophe, you know, because if Vesuvius blows, mm-hmm. you're basically looking at losing a good chunk of southern Italy. Mm-hmm. The one downside, which is why you get quite sociopathic, is from an insurance point of view, you don't really care if it's a poor area or the property isn't worth a lot. Mm-hmm. It's why Florida is such a big thing because there's a lot of money in Florida. So if the Florida, you know, if a, if a hurricane goes up the wrong side of Florida, you're looking at a massive amount of bill. Whereas if it goes the other side of Florida, which is the one that Irma was, it doesn't do nearly as much, much damage simply because the property values aren't nearly as high there. Yeah, and I think that's kind of something we can bring back to listeners as well because think of the all the wealth that would be in in Florida, so all of the wealthy individuals' homes, offices, that type of thing. Um, yeah, whereas if it's sparsely populated yeah. or it's 
you know, populated by, by maybe buildings of poor construction or... A couple uh, of years ago, a really destructive uh, hurricane went into North Carolina, but there wasn't much there. Mm. And anything, so everything got wiped out, but the homes weren't worth a lot. So in terms of insurance losses, it didn't add up to much. Yeah. And that's kind of, like I said, the one thing about insurance, sometimes it makes you a bit of a sociopath. <laughs> <laughs> that's just the reality of the podcast <laughs> episode of the psychology <laughs> with the underwriter. <laughs> I have heard some... Stories that would be utterly appalling on, in any other context. But yeah, that's probably a topic for another day. So anyway, so that's so. But the big thing about property reinsurance is that it needs a lot of capital. Because, like I said, if a hurricane like Hurricane Andrew being the classic one that kind of started modern catastrophe modeling uh, was 1992 and it went through Florida and it basically went through all the wealthy areas of Florida. And I think at the time it was estimated the insurance companies invested in they estimated two or three billion dollars and this woman Karen Clark who's kind of a pioneer in catastrophe modeling she went no it's probably going to be more like 12 or 13 and if the buildings in Florida weren't up to code it's going to be maybe more and I think the final bill came in at 15 or 16 billion and uh, that suddenly you know a whole lot of companies went out of business so one thing you often find is reinsurance companies have classes so there's a, a whole series of reinsurance companies called the class of 93 because they all got set up in the wake of hurricane andrew right. and there's also a class of 2006 in the wake of uh krw katrina wilma and irma because that's the one thing that people don't realize hurricane katrina happened but in the same summer two other cat five hurricanes made landfall in the u.s and went through quite wealthy areas so a, a whole load of insur- reinsurance companies went out of business in 2005 yeah. because the claims just went you know, especially where the, uh, some reinsurance companies will inv- uh, sell what they call high layer. So they'll look at like going back to your excess of loss thing. They'll go, they'll start insuring losses that start at $2 billion. So they look like geniuses for 15 years because they never get any claims. And then suddenly they lose 25 years worth of premium, mm. you know, because that's when it blows. It tends to blow really big. Yeah. And those th- those type of players, they will usually take larger line sizes. Yeah. So instead of just being, say... 10 million over 10 million, they're going to be like 10 billion over 2 billion. Yeah. Because they assume that the first 2 billion will never get breached. Yeah. And yeah. if they do breach, it doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah. You know, but the, <laughs> but also they need to take in a, a large line size because they need the premium because mm-hmm. you're going to be getting a very small premium. So to actually get the dollar amounts, it needs to be a big chunky thing. Well, we talk about capital then. So say your line size is 2 billion or yeah. whatever your line size happens to be. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be big if you're a reinsurer. Yeah. When you talk about capital, am I right in saying that they have to put enough money away, essentially, in, in, a, in a fund that can pay that claim if it ever happens? They didn't have to, actually, originally. It was quite unregulated mm. until, I can't remember if it was after Andrew or if it was later. It's much more regulated now. Um, but back then it was really just a question, and it still is to a certain extent. I mean, because at the end of the day, the regulator isn't going to save you if things get really, really bad. So if you look at any of the websites of, say, Munich Re or Swiss Re or any of those really big reinsurance names, Genry, they actually put on the front page, pretty much on the landing page, how much, how much capital, how big their balance sheet is. Because their whole point is, we want to be here when you can pay, when you, when, you know, when you need us. I mean, it's why Lloyds of London got so successful. The famous one, if anyone talks about the history of Lloyds, they will always mention the 1905 San Francisco earthquake because one of the famous underwriters in Lloyds at the time basically told his agent in San Francisco, pay all claims regardless of the terms and conditions. And that's why Lloyds has such a stellar reputation in the US because 
because of that, because they basically came and paid the claims. And I have heard stories of a couple of other reinsurance companies who understand their risk very well. They'll just prepay their claims. They'll look at who they're... They're known as cedents because they're ceding risk. So they'll look at whoever their insurance companies are in that area and they'll have a rough idea of how much they do. So they will literally wire them money overnight so that they can start paying out claims immediately. And it's part of their whole customer service thing on a B2B basis. Yeah, yeah and also it's, it's very different from your typical insurance claim. So say it's a motor claim or a home claim. Yeah. You know, th- that there's a whole lengthy process that goes into paying a claim, whereas the lengthy process from a reinsurance point of view is done at the underwriting stage. Yeah. So they might be underwriting these deals for months. Yeah. So by the time a claim comes in, well, they probably have watched it on the news. Like they know, like there's, they're not going to be squibbling over terms and conditions, you know, or very rarely will yeah. they be squibbling over small terms and conditions. That will have been done at the start. So Unless it's a huge claim in, which poses yeah. an existential, like the, the classic one was the uh, the Twin Towers yeah. after 9-11, which had only been bought in June that year. And I can't remember who was the, there's actually a really good podcast about talking about that claim, whether it was one incident or two. I can't, I think it was with Hiscox. I can't remember who the business was with, but there was a huge. Or no, it was Travelers. I think it would have been shares. It wouldn't have been one insurer on that. Risk. No, but the they Travelers. Would have I think had the main with the yeah. lead underwriter. Yeah. So I think that now I'm saying it's Travelers. I think it was Travelers. But there was a huge claim because of whether it was one incident or two, mm-hmm. because of the terms of the policy and what the payout was going to be. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so that so as you can imagine, for all of these kind of things, you need a big balance sheet. You need to have a huge big pot of all cash Mm. because you know the claims in this it's not so much that there's it's not so much that you've got one big claim so the the thing in insurance as well there's a distinction between a large loss and a catastrophic loss so a large loss is when some one big thing burns down so like the twin towers would be a classic example of a large loss it's one incident that is a massive insurance claim Whereas a catastrophic loss tends to be this aggregation of risk. Yeah, so every insurer feels the effect. Yeah, and also an entire area geographically gets wiped out, let's say. Yeah. So it's not so much that you have one claim that costs you a fortune. It's that you might have thousands of claim claims that cost you a good bit of money. Yeah. So in aggregate, the bill, the butcher's bill is absolutely huge. Yeah. And, and that's a very different risk to manage from large loss versus cat loss. Yeah. So you'll actually see that in a lot of property portfolios. They'll break down... You know, your attritional stuff, which is just your average average one day, you know, a shop, shop burns down because someone leaves the gas on kind of thing versus your large loss, which is, you know, you know, an office block explodes due to a gas leak yeah. versus yeah. exactly yeah. versus a catastrophic loss where, you know, all of half of southern Florida gets wiped out. Yeah. So when when you're dealing with that, you just need large capital. So that's basically what happened was it was a capital problem. And how that manifested itself was reinsurance companies were making a crap ton of money. So tell me, when you say capital problem, does that mean there's you too much, too little? Or what? You didn't have enough capital in the business. The, the, you know, the demands, for, the demands for reinsurance was going up and up and up. More and more people were needing it. And there wasn't enough reinsurance companies around. So there was, there was a somewhat restriction on supply because it was a capital problem. There just wasn't enough capital there. So as a result, the rates were relatively high. So when you look at Adrian Jones from SCORE, who's kind of their head of innovation, I think you've probably seen him speak at InsureTech Ireland. He, he has a really good article on this where he talks about how much money was being made by the reinsurance companies like in the early 210s, like we're not talking 20 years ago, I'm only talking less than 10 years ago, their return on equity was like 15, 20, 25%. It was huge because they were making so much money off their property cap book. And it's cyclical. 
cycle. So the idea is, you know, one year you get wiped out because, you know, a bunch of hurricanes go through the US or you have something like Fukushima, right? And that's really... But what what people don't realise is that's one bad year and then the rates triple or quadruple, which is typically what would happen. And then you make it all back in a year or two and then everything else is profit um, until the next one happens. And that was kind of... That was always... It was known as the cycle and it would kind of work that way. Um, but as typically happens, when it's just a capital problem and there's a it's a very profitable business, capital tends to find a way to get deployed. So ILS came about as a way of providing extra capital to the reinsurance industry. So these are the reinsurance companies come up with the concept, do they? Um, that's a good question. I think so. I think originally it was, uh, or, or at least reinsurance players who kind of figured this out. So essentially what you do is rather than, rather than creating a reinsurance company, you create a vehicle like essentially a special purpose vehicle, like a special company whose job is to do this. And they will basically say, okay, we are going to raise, say, $1.5 billion or $600 million, whatever, whatever they, let's say a billion dollars. So they'll go around and find investors. And the idea is everyone puts their money into this company. And let's, it's a lot more complicated than this, but let's just say it's a bank account with a billion dollars in it, right? And what they will do is they will come up with very specific terms and conditions for what that money is being used for. And it might be, say, to cover, you know, earthquake risk in the United States or hurricane risk or in Japan or wherever it is. And it will be very specific. I mean, it has to be. And it will be very specific terms and conditions. And they will say, so what's going to happen is, um, and then a reinsurance company is going to essentially provide the capital and provide the underwriting. And then any claims or whatever are going to be paid out of this pot of money. So essentially the idea is that you're kind of ring fencing a, um, a fund of cash to finance the reinsurance of business with very specific terms and conditions so that there's no real ambiguity when, when the money gets paid out. You don't want, what you don't want in these cases is like you don't want to create a raft of court cases over what the T's and C's are. A bit like you said earlier with the, the reinsurance contracts. Everything tends to be very clearly laid out. You know, if this happens, sometimes it's even parameterized. Mm-hmm. So it might be a case of, and by that I mean, it might be that like the earthquake, the magnitude on the Richter scale on an earthquake may have to have hit whatever, 7.5 or whatever it is. Or if it's a wind speed would have to have been recorded by whatever meteorological authority it is and it, the wind yeah, speed yeah. may have have to hit like 120 kilometers an hour or whatever it may be yeah. and then and that's when the cover tricks kicks in so you have this kind of parametric element in a lot of cases but the idea is you're just trying to make it you're trying to create as certain a set of conditions as possible for payouts to occur so the idea is so people put in the premiums it pays a bond so um, Sorry, can I just ask one question yeah. so the reinsurer or the the company who's yeah. coming up with the fund, yeah. they're going around to various different, I assume, private investors or institutional investors? It's almost entirely, so I, I actually had a conversation about this. It's almost entirely institutional. Yeah. Institutional pretty much takes down all of the all of the risk on this. And who are they? Are they insurance companies or pension funds? Uh, what, governments? I, I think it's all of the, basically anyone who you would consider an asset manager tends to take this down because it it would fall under alternative asset classes. Mm. So in the same way that some of these money managers will invest in fine art or they'll invest in wine or they'll invest in basically anything that isn't your standard stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities, you know, those the five or six standard line items you would consider Mm. when it comes to investments. 
everything else is considered alternative assets. And, okay. and this would be considered an alternative asset. Okay, so say so the company goes around, they they raise the funds, get yeah. the money in the fund, yeah. which will pay out to, to who? Well, well, it does two things. So are you familiar with a bond? Yeah. What a bond is. So yeah. a bond is like a vehicle. It's the idea is I am Acme Widget Company and I need to raise money. Yeah. So what I will do is I will say, okay, well, for I'm going to create... A, um, like a series of what are known as, I mean, they've got called bonds. They're technically Loans. not the, yeah. So it's essentially a loan. So the idea is I need, you know, $50 million to build a factory over here because we've got some opportunity or, or even simpler. It could be just a way of cash flow financing. Mm-hmm. So like I do, you know, I do business four times a year, but everyone wants to get paid on a weekly basis or a monthly basis. And I need to smooth out my cash flow management. So sometimes bonds are used as a cash flow management tool, but the idea is, I create however much money I'm 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 going to raise. Let's say it's fifty million dollars. Bonds are typically denominated in a thousand dollar denominations, which is the par value. And then, however many bonds I sell will be the amount of money I'm trying to raise. And then there's a, a bunch of pricing because you don't necessarily pay the par value. And there's also a coupon payment, and a coupon payment is like the interest rate. Okay. So let's say it's a ten percent coupon on a thousand dollars. That means I'm going to pay a hundred dollars a year. Okay. Uh, and it's actually paid every six months, so it's fifty dollars every six months. But that's neither here nor there. And that's paid. Sorry, that's paid back to the investor, the owner of the bonds. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's like a loan. So the, it is actually a loan. It's just not done the way you and I might think of going to a bank and getting a bunch of cash in my bank account. Yeah. It's but it's essentially the same idea. So when people talk about corporate debt and corporate debt yields, what they're talking about is the effective interest rate payment on these bonds because there's a massive reseller market on this as well and when they talk about like in the Irish debt so the Irish banking crisis in Ireland when basically the Irish bank went government went bust what basically happened was there was a whole bunch of banks that had corporate debt that they had to pay back and they couldn't finance the debt anymore because they couldn't no one would lend to them anymore and this tends to be done so the Irish government went in and guaranteed the bonds had to pay out a whole lot of people and then their bonds then two or three years later their interest rate payments went up. And this is where the whole debate around should we burn the bondholders all exactly. that stuff happened. Because yeah. that was that was typically and, and the reason why the, the reason why it's so big is because I mean everyone talks when they everyone talks about Wall Street or finance or you know the the city of London or any of them, they, they it's very natural to think about the stock market. But the stock market is actually much, much smaller than say the bond market. The bond market is a couple of orders of magnitude bigger than the stock market in terms of how much. And then another couple of orders of magnitude bigger again is currencies. And currencies are just huge. And is it because like the stock market, is the stock market more volatile? Is that why it's a bit more sexy and newsworthy? Um, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's typically, yeah, it's, so you can tell a story when it comes to the stock market. Bonds are boring and they always were. And also in the world of high interest rates, they didn't really do very much. So we had a fixed interest rate regime until, you know, basically the 1970s. And again, to go back to Michael Lewis in the big short, he talks about this and it's mentioned in the film. Like it didn't really, it wasn't particularly interesting. Um, also, there's a lot more mathematical certainty around a bond. So while bonds are very interesting from a quant finance perspective, like for me, bonds are very, very interesting. There's also, um, their value is much more certain than a bond, than a stock is. Because for a stock, someone like Apple, Apple can release the iPhone and suddenly the suddenly it goes from being, you know, a cautionary tale to being the world's biggest company in the space of 
what the iPhone came out in 2007 so it's 10 years later mm-hmm. and to be honest it was one of the world's most exciting companies by probably 2012 mm-hmm. 2000 and, so that's the kind of thing that can happen with a stock because you have uncapped upside all that will happen with a bond is you you go from probably getting your money back to definitely getting your money back and that's a lot less interesting mm-hmm. um so the there's no real there's only really downside to being a bondholder because you might not get your money back and this is exactly kind of going back into the, like if 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 you're an owner of an ILS security the worst thing that will happen is you will lose all your money mm-hmm. but you can't really make a crap ton of money from it it's it's a it's a it's a fixed upside with an uncertain downside where stocks is kind of the other way around and if you know it, what I mean. How how is the what are the funds held in when they're not being paid out? So I assume you the money is tied up uh, for a period of time. Yeah. is it put in cash or how is it held? So my and this is where I get a bit uncertain because while I understand ILS, I've never actually dealt with them unlike stocks and bonds and options. My understanding of it is what happens is the the so this goes back to the coupon payment, which is why I was talking about. If you own an ILS. They have all these fancy names. They're mainly traded out of Bermuda, out of the Bermuda Stock Exchange. And there's a really good website, Artemis.bm, that actually deals. It's basically the main website for ILS, as far as I can tell. And they have a database of every single ILS deal that was ever done. There's been like 600 of them, I think, at this point. My understanding is what they do is they create this fund, they put a lot of money into it. And then whoever is actually managing the underlying insurance exposure also pays a premium in because it's essentially a reinsurance contract. So that... Plus whatever money market funds they tend to hold the money is that's what generates the the coupon payment that's returned to the bondholder. So and it's a combination of the the bondholders financing and then the, also the uh, the reinsurer or insurers premium premium payment. payment. Yeah, they okay. pay a payment in, and that and that's manifested as the coupon payment, whatever the coupon payment would be. Um, I'm not quite sure what those yields are. They're, I think they're on Artemis, but I imagine they're probably. I mean, in the modern day thing, the, the bonds are typically short term as well. They're only they're only released on a one or two or three year basis. I don't think they go much longer than that. And the idea is you've re, you release the cap bond, the cap bond. Yeah, they typically only have a couple of years of a lifetime. They don't go on like it's not like a ten year or twenty year or thirty year bond that you would see in, in a lot of other areas. Mm-hmm. They, they tend to be quite short term, and again, that ties into the whole specific things that they tend to insure. You're really looking at because the main thing you care about in reinsurance is whether the bad thing happened or not. And it's not you don't really necessarily care about five years time because that's a very different world. And catastrophe, you know, insurance premium tends to be done on a one year basis anyway. So you don't really need these. In fact, it's probably very dangerous to go five or 10 years out because the world can change a lot in that time. So the bonds tend to be quite short. As far as I can tell, the premium is paid by the insurance company and that that plus some very minor investments because it's money market funds. You're not going to earn a lot from that. That's where the premium, the bond payment comes from, the coupon payment. And then the idea is if nothing bad happens, you get your money back. And if something bad happens, then that is used to fund the reinsurance payments. So you either lose some of your interest or you may even lose some or all of your capital investment as well. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where... You know, the and that's kind of where the, the pricing comes in and the, the various kind of risk management and stuff like that. But people are attracted to it because A, it's giving you a it's giving you a coupon payment that's essentially uncorrelated to a lot of others. In some cases the returns are much better because we're living in a world of very low interest rates. Um so that can be it can make it appealing for that as well. And also it's appealing on the other side because what often happens is um the person structuring the fund 
is often the same company that's actually getting the reinsurance benefit. Uh, yeah, because that's what my next question is going to be. What's in it for everyone? Because I understand how, say, for example, if you're uh, the sedent, the yeah. the primary insurer, you're you're getting capital to to do. It enables yeah. you to do business, um, so that's fine. And then, obviously, from an investor's point of view, you know, it's a it's a relatively um, uh, what's the word um, stable uh, asset class to put your money into. But then I was wondering, like, the person who manages the fund, what's what's in it for them? Are they getting a management fee, or how does that work? So. Uh, yeah, I mean, sorry, you couldn't see, the listeners can't see me nod there, but yes, the magic word fees <laughs> in all finance. Yeah. So that what typically happens is the structure, the, the person actually structuring the fund will also earn management fees off that. So I think what typically happens is that they'll, they'll, they'll have some kind of structure that they, they'll set up. They'll also charge a fee for it, which so they so essentially the reinsurance company will get two benefits. They'll get the fee, and they'll also get the the, the capital provision for their reinsurance without having to you know sell equity or pay off the debt or whatever. There, you know, it tends to be it's just it's a very because because it's so capital intensive, you're essentially cutting out an awful lot of expenses. So it just makes it a it's a very cheap form of capital for them to fund their business with. So and then so it started out with a very specific on the catastrophe bond. But now it's started to expand into lots of other areas because the idea itself is quite a good one. And the idea is the the other idea is that you're essentially securitizing insurance, which I know securitization kind of got a bad name because of, you know, all the bad stuff that happened in the 2000s. But it's like any other technology, almost any time technology is invented, it tends to have some very negative effects. Mm-hmm. So like, for example, you know, when we discovered radiation, which we use now for cancer treatments and for, you know, ha- nuclear energy, which we can argue whether that's good or bad. But, you know, radiation is incredibly useful technology. But, you know, Marie Curie died of it because she had no idea what she was dealing with. And we just didn't understand the downsides of it. Similarly with electricity, you know, it was a very dangerous technology, but it's also important to everyone. So a lot of this, the concepts of securitization are very, very valuable. But, you know, in a lot of cases, they got misused. So now securitization is very helpful because essentially, rather than adding a whole lot of extra expense into something that's mainly about capital provision, you're making it much cheaper, which ultimately boils down to making cheaper insurance for everyone. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. Uh, and that's what the 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 textbook example of um not the wrong way, but just uh, how we can get how securitization can maybe get um used for evil is the whole uh, was it collateral collateralized debt yeah, obligations. Obligation. So this is the, the bundling of mortgages into yeah, bonds. Which and by make, themselves wasn't a bad idea. No, and, and I'm sure they're probably still being sold. They absolutely are. What, but the problem was it was the lower tranches that yeah. were then being repackaged up and basically there was a certain amount of willful mass delusion because everyone was making too much money. <laughs> but it doesn't actually mean that the underlying concepts are flawed. You just need to be cognizant of the risks and stuff. I love that phrase you just used, willful mass delusion. Did you come up with that just now? Or? Uh, yeah, but I mean, it's the truth. I mean, that, I mean, you know, there's this, there's, and, and I guess this probably, the other interesting thing on, on, on ILS, which I've, are we doing okay every time? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The other interesting thing about ILS, and this, again, from going 
conversations with a couple of people in Bermuda that I've had is there there isn't much of a secondary market. So one of the things they were trying to do as well with ILS, and it's definitely something that will come down the line. Sorry, when you say secondary market, do you mean kind of you'll have the premium, uh, like you know the the triple A kind of version, and then like no, the, no, okay. no. So, so what, what do you mean by secondary yeah, market? So I'm about to go. I was yeah. just about to explain that. So so essentially, what happens is. Um, so let's go let's go back to rather than talk about ILS for a second let's just go back to the standard bond. So if I am Acme Acme widget company and I want to issue 50 million in debt let's say what will happen is I'll go to an investment bank and they'll help me underwrite and they they basically have the distribution so they know who likes to buy debt from my type of company blah 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 and they will have you know well it's a computer now but back in the day it would be a Rolodex and they'll know all the people to call and they will say, are you interested in this? And then, you know, a deal gets struck and then those people buy the bonds and it gets distributed. What makes bonds so interesting is those people often then sell those bonds on to other people. And that's what's called the secondary market. Mm-hmm. So you have basically when you're when you're buying, when you buy the initial issuance, the issuer of the bond, it gets bought by like on the primary basis. So that those are the people who literally buy from either the underwriter who's underwriting on behalf of the company or from the company directly. Mm. And then they take it onto their books and they take it onto into their inventory. And then what typically happens in the bond market is those then get sold off to other people and there's, you know, there's trading and there's back and forth. And so that's pr- where we come put to the mortgages, like you had the mortgage bonds and then you had bonds and mortgages bonds. Well, no, not even that. Groups of mortgage bonds. Well, that, but not even that. It, this could be just the mortgage bonds, and it's just I have a bond, and I'm going to sell my bond on oh. to you. Oh, so oh, okay. Yeah, it's just trading. It's yeah. just the fact that these things get traded. So you have the, this. What's called the secondary market. So it's when things go rather than buying directly from whoever is issuing. It's the buying and the selling. It's just the trading oh, of I meant it. The magazine. Oh, exactly. Yeah. yeah <laughs> yes. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, and that's what it is. It's basically a bunch of Dell boys going. You know, <laughs> what have you got, and how much can I get? Right. And you know, I mean, in a lot of cases. You know, that's what happens. And the benefit of that is, is it's that magic word they talk about in trading, which is liquidity. Mm-hmm. So the, the the good thing for all the problems that, you know, mark to market has and, you know, liquidity and all them. Um, the, the good thing, market prices do give send signals to the demand and stuff. So the idea with ILS was to start basically creating a market for risk so that you can buy and sell stuff. Um, and the more liquid and the more trading there is, the more you can believe the number. Whereas, you know, when you have very illiquid markets, a good example of that being like presidential elections where they do the buying and selling on that, it's very easy to skew the prices, which is why the fringe candidates tend to have, according to the markets, excessively high percentage chances of success, which are really realistic. Like, for example, I know in, I think it was four years ago or eight years ago, Ron Paul had like a 10% chance of coming becoming president according to this to the the betting markets. But that was clearly nonsense. But because it's relatively illiquid and shallow, it's very easy for a couple of people who are going to buy it a lot to kind of push the prices up. Yeah. So the idea was to have that in the ILS. Now, as to my understanding, you don't have much of a secondary market. So what typically happens is if you're a big pension fund, and you want to get into the insurance business, you buy it and then you take it onto your books and you don't sell it. You kind of hold it because it's a two or three year bond and you hold it until it matures, you get your money back and then you reinvest it. So there isn't as much of this secondary market effect in terms of, so there is some of it traded and most of it seems to be traded in Bermuda, which have kind of identified themselves as like the primary basis for, um, 
for ILS in in the world, um, and most of it is traded on the BMX. But um, as far as I'm aware, um, that secondary market hasn't really happened yet. Now, that's something they'd probably be interested in because the more people are trading it, the cost of capital comes down, which means you can actually create more bonds Mm -hmm. and you can provide more capital to the insurance industry, which the insurance industry is always going to need. So there would be a benefit to that. Yeah. Yeah, well, you can... Yeah, well... You could argue whether whether or not there's an oversupply at the moment of capital generally. What would your thoughts on that be? Do you think we need more capital in in the insurance market? I, I think that's a market. That's so. It's a tough one. I mean, you're you're we're now moving into the world of like global macroeconomics. <laughs> I think it's I think it's safe to say that interest rates are very low now, and they're probably too low. There's a question of whether or not they're being artificially kept low by central banks or not. I was very convinced they were a few years ago. Now I'm not as sure. It could be just a whole bunch of economic conditions. Because, I mean, I, we're getting quite philosophical here, but there is an argument to be made that the rise of technology ha- has very strong deflationary pressures because what happens is it becomes cheaper and cheaper to supply things that would previously have been very expensive. So that is a very deflationary, but just by its very nature. So... There is a belief that central banks are like artificially keeping prices low and keeping interest rates low, but I'm not entirely sure they can. I, I, I'm, I think that's a conspiracy theory that is very nice and emotionally satisfying to believe, but I'm not sure they have that much power, to be honest with you. How do you think that relates to insurance and supply of capital? In the insurance because market? when interest rates are low, it means the cost of money is cheap, which means money is trying to find somewhere because ultimately money so the mechanisms is such that a lot of a lot of asset management in the world is basically pension funds and it's these people need to pay annuities to people or need to be able to provide so it's the search for yield is what they call it so if you have very low interest rates then essentially it's very cheap to borrow money which means there's a lot of money of around which means that money needs somewhere to put and as a result, it's just very cheap in general, which is why you're seeing, for example, so much money being put into startups now. It's why uh, in, um, stock prices keep going up and up and up because interest rates are low. So the discount rate is very low, is very high, is very low. I mean, so it means future cash flows aren't discounted nearly as much as they used to be. So you get all these kind of bond rates. It's why it's so cheap to, I mean, um, the Netherlands came out a couple of months ago and they basically went, well, we can essentially borrow money for free. So we're going to, I can't remember how much they borrowed, but it's a few billion and they're going to put it into an infrastructure fund to pay for it, which to me is actually quite a sensible thing to do. If you can get money for free, it's a great time to invest in. Now, of course, the danger is you give it to a bunch of politicians and they go like a bunch of frat boys at a, you know. That'll never happen. No, of course not. No. (laughs) Not at all. What am I thinking? But, um, you know, so, so, I mean, I think in general, I think it's fairly safe to say that the price of risk is too low right now. Uh, and I think that's true if you look across anything. Um, I mean, the one thing is, though, the price of risk isn't the only thing that affects insurance prices. Mm-hmm. You've also got to look at the cost of regulation. You've got to look at the, the competitive market, also the operating costs, cost of distribution. Um, so there's a lot of other things at play that aren't necessarily impacting the price. But that isn't true, we'll say, at the macro level for something like ILS. Because, like I said, the whole idea is to make that efficient, take out a lot of the cost of capital and take out a lot of the 
like operating costs so you can just provide the capital to the people relatively efficiency and then capture the profitability incidentally in that other that article i mentioned with adrian he talks about like that up to 2012 how much money they made and then what has happened since and in almost all cases like the rate of returns are about half what they were because ILSs came in and they've kind of they've eaten away all those profit margins now mm. that money just isn't there anymore and well, what I assume though that the reinsurers don't have that exposure. Um, well, then how, how does well, they it? Do. Yeah, yeah. So they still have the exposure, yeah. and they get less of a return. Yeah. Because uh, what's what's happened yeah. is it's a competitive marketplace. Yeah. So what's yeah. happened is yeah. all this ILS is providing the capacity that they were the only ones providing before. So they're not just competing with themselves; they're competing also with the IL, with the ILS marketplace. Yeah, and this is where I'm thinking of the term that I've you hear turned thrown around in the same paragraphs as these, which is a alternative risk transfer. Yeah. So from an, insur- an insurer's point of view or a seedant's point of view, the traditional way to transfer risk off their balance sheet was using a reinsurer, but then they have alternative methods like Correct. ILS. Yeah. Okay. And that's what that's... Makes that's sense. What, I mean, there's a bunch of other ways of doing it as well that you can, you know, another alternative would be to create a captive, yeah. which is kind of like a reinsurer as well, but it's internal to the organisation. But yeah, I mean, ILS would be a big part of alternative risk transfer now because essentially people are looking for ways to do this. And, um, you know, there's money to be made, so therefore people are going to get involved. In, and the one thing Capital Markets is very, very good at is it's is, is make, figuring out how to make money. Now, not necessarily for other people. They might be just making money for themselves. Or if they are making money for, the, for other people, they're managing to claw most of it back in via that magic word fees again mm-hmm. but um you know they they there is typically they're well incentivized to do a job here so that's why you see and but i mean you know the reinsurance companies have gotten in on this too i mean most of the big reinsurers now will structure ils deals in fact i was talking to someone recently from one of the reinsurance companies in dublin and he was going back to the office that afternoon because he had to uh, put some terms around like a an ILS deal that they were getting ready to issue. And it's moved out now. It's not just Property Cat anymore. They've also got ILS in on the health, life and health side mm-hmm. for a whole load of stuff. So they'll probably like, you know, all the people in a certain area with a certain amount of underwriting profile. And pretty much, I, I can actually see, they're even talking about cyber, which is a bit mental because we don't even know how to insure in cyber, let alone create cat bonds on it or ILS bonds on it. I don't even know what a cat event would be. Yeah, I mean, really. I, I actually know a guy who I met at a conference a couple of years ago and he's been hired by one of the companies in London um, and his job is to try and figure that out. Like, what does catastrophe mean for cyber? And I think, I, actually, I'm hoping to meet up with him the next time I go to London just to hear how he's getting on. I kind of heard from him in I think September or whatever, and he was just starting out. So I said, "Ah, oh, well, let's hook up in six months and let's hear you again." Because yeah. it's—I mean, it's an interesting problem. I don't even know what it would look like. But the point I'm making is that ILS is starting. That's why it's called. Insu- it used to be called cat bonds. Now they're insurance-linked securities because, and sometimes they, they, they sometimes they will actually be very specific to a company. So rather than rather than saying you know a particular line of business, sometimes they will just provide capital for a whole bunch of insurance risks, mm. like diversified insurance risks for a particular company. And you will just essentially, a bit like 
MGAs and capacity providers in that you're kind of saying, I kind of think you have good underwriting in general and you're a reasonably well-run insurance company and we are going to provide, you know, $500 million worth of capital Mm. to you to run, you know, these lines of business and, uh, you know, you'll pay as an insurance premium and it's basically an alternative source of capital rather than having to raise money from their equity or or credit lines or whatever. They basically issue an ILS to fund their business that way. Or find new... um reinsurers or whatever yeah. Um, yeah, yeah or structured or reinsurance deals differently and you know that there's also the complications there and underwriting appetite and things yeah. like that yeah yeah whereas they can just say look if we can get the people to do this and you know and, and the other thing that really helped cat bonds is they kind of started getting issued around 2006 2007 and from like 2005 to 2017 a cat 5 hurricane didn't hit landfall in the u.s so it went like 12 years without really having any claims in terms of catastrophe claims. So there was a whole bunch of people as well who were, you know, hugely successful yeah. because they wrote those upper layers as well yeah. and they just made a crap ton of money because when your loss when you know when your when your loss ratio is zero because you're literally paying no claims because you've never nothing has ever came to your layer, you know, it's very easy to make money in that way, you know. As the old fella I remember a young fella said to me you know, they, I can't remember. It was a local game, and they were in in Gaelic, mm. and the final score was something like three fourteen to a point. And he said, "If the other opposition hadn't scored, we'd have won." <laughs> um, tell us a little bit more where people can find out more about you and your own business. Yeah, so I'm I'm, I'm Mick Cooney, and I'm the CTO of Describe Data. I talked a bit about it in the previous podcast on Data is the New Oil. We provide uh, services to underwriters to help them. Uh, providing insights for complex risks. Um, you can get us at describedata.com and you can find me on LinkedIn. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Mick. Thank you. Talk to you again. Thank you for listening. If you like the podcast, please share it far and wide. Also, don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn. Just search for InsureTech Ireland. Have a great week and I'll speak to you next time.